from the campus of the Wharton School in San Francisco. This is Startup School Radio. Here is Y Combinator partner, Aaron Harris. Welcome to Startup School Radio, live from Wharton's San Francisco campus on Sirius XM's business radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Kat Mignolik, a partner at Y Combinator, where we fund early stage companies and work with them to build billion dollar businesses. Coming up on today's show, I'll speak with Sam Hashemi, the CEO and co-founder of Remix, about how his software startup is working to dramatically better public transit. And later on, I'll speak with the co-founders of Latote, an on-demand fashion rental service that sends members unlimited clothing and accessories delivered directly to their door. Every year at Y Combinator, we host a conference we call Startup School, where amazing founders tell their stories, what they've learned building their companies, the screw-ups, the successes, and everything in between. This show brings those founders to you on a weekly basis. We broadcast every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific. Our goal is to help anyone thinking about starting a company learn how to do it better. We are at BizRadio111 on Twitter, and I tweet under Kat Mignolik. I'm happy to be joined now by Sam Hashemi, the co-founder and CEO of Remix, a company helping governments run great public transit. Before he started Remix with his co-founders, Sam worked at NASA leading the redesign of systems aboard the International Space Station. His team replaced the 1990s era software with modern iPad and iPhone apps. He also designed and prototyped next-gen interfaces for the Mars Curiosity rover, the Kepler Space Telescope, and the Deep Space Network, setting a bar for the role of design inside a space agency. Sam, thank you so much for joining me. So glad to be here. Thanks. So I, I want to talk about how did you go from working at NASA to deciding to start your own and build your own company? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, so my background, and this is sort of like the opposite of people who are like startup people, is that I am passionate about government. <laughs> I've just long thought that government's this really fascinating space where you have a unique opportunity to make a very large impact at a very large scale. Um, and so my career has mostly been doing design inside government. Mm-hmm. I started in a national lab in like the middle of the desert. And I went from there to NASA for a couple of years, helping you know be part of a very small team that was like doing design when things go terribly wrong and you realize the importance of design. Um, and so I was doing that for a couple of years and just very quickly saw the scale of impact you could have. Uh, we redesigned things for scientists and like the next day they'd be twice as good at their job. We redesigned things for astronauts and they'd be like, you know, happy that they're astronauts instead of struggling to use age old software. Um, and just over time started to realize that the same thing was happening everywhere inside government. Mm-hmm. Uh, the technology had not been updated in decades in a meaningful way. Were you worried that government is actually so usually slow moving and that sales cycle or that, you know, their development cycle is quite slow? I think that's the natural inclination. You're like, government, it moves slow. But I think when you build something great in any context, including government, things change very, very quickly. Uh, so we built this next gen thing for the astronauts and, you know, Houston is this place that's very difficult to make change. Um, By nature, they're very conservative. But if you show them something, if you show them that vision of the future, uh, very quickly they overcome those bureaucratic hurdles and like push, push to actually make it their reality. And so I think we've seen that everywhere in government. And that's part of what led to starting Remix. Um, Just started talking to urban planners, you know, here in San Francisco, in Atlanta, a bunch of cities around, around the U.S., asking them how they do their work. And the thing we'd hear is just the same thing, the same story where they'd 
pull out their big paper scroll and you know, unfurl it carefully on the table and say, we've got this paper map. We've wow, got so they were ma- still using pen and paper to map out public transit. Absolutely. P- pen and paper, Excel. These are like the gold standard in government tools. Um, and so as we talked to them, you know, we, we saw that there was this opportunity to, to help them be as successful as they needed to be. Um, and so we didn't say, oh, now we'll start a company. That was not the next step. Instead, we said, hey, I just want to help these people. Uh, can we do a small side project? Um, so we, we put this thing on the Internet. It was very small at that point, a little map where you could sketch out a bus route. And it got reblogged and then retweeted. And then this influx of emails from transit planners saying, I have been waiting. This <laughs> is the thing. And then they'd add like 19 feature requests at the end of the email. Like, and when are you going to add this? And when are you going to add that? Um, and we got enough of those emails that we said, hey, maybe there's something here. So that was sort of the point where we're like, hey, let's, let's start this thing as a company and see what happens. And so how did you meet your co-founders? Yeah, so the, the context for this is we were in this program called Code for America. Mm-hmm. Um, the way it works, it's a year-long sort of year of service where you pair with city government, try to find places to have an impact. Do they pair you or do you decide where you want to go? Uh, they pair you, so you kind of fill in this form saying, here's the types of things I'm interested in, um, here's the kind of cities I'm passionate about, and they, they sort of organize you around. So I, I was actually organ- uh, paired with Atlanta trying to work on their court system, so something totally unrelated. Um, and this sort of emerged as a side project where I was really passionate about it and just kind of pulled in the other people in the room who were like excited about the same topic. Um, and so throughout that year of service, uh, we the four of us got to know each other and got to work on this side project. And by the the end of it, we just knew each other so well that we're like, hey, we want to work together in any capacity that makes sense. And how do you kind of what do each of you do on the team or do you kind of all work across everything? Well, at the very beginning, we were all doing everything. It was very hectic as we tried to figure out how to turn a little side project into a company. Uh, as we've grown over the last year or so, we've definitely started to focus on different por- portions of the company. Um, so two of my co-founders, uh, both named Dan, are, are sort of an engineer uh, in background. And so they've taken a real lead in leading that engineering team and growing it, making sure our product continues to be as polished as we need it to be. Uh, and then my co-founder Tiffany has really taken a shine to like the business side of things. So mm-hmm. the sales and the marketing, making sure we're getting those 75 cities on board quickly and getting the next 100 cities after that. So you had no experience selling to governments, right? Or or had any of you worked in that space before? We were all designers and engineers. We, so- had, <laughs> we did not know the word sales. The word sales scared us, I think, when we stepped in the room. Uh, it's still a little bit like we still kind of squirm when we hear the word sales, but I think we've like learned enough about it and gotten good enough and understood like the critical importance in actually achieving the goals that you want to do. So how did you learn how to do it or what was that process like? It, what, it was, were the, what did you do at the very beginning? <laughs> it was very much a struggle. And I think this, the most of the learning happened while we were in YC. Uh, we went in, I think we had like one beta customer at that point, something like that. And we didn't really know what even the first step was. Was the beta customer just from someone, one of the transit planners who'd emailed you earlier? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and so we sat down, I think, with Dalton Caldwell and said, how do we do government sales? And he said, oh, well, I don't know. I've never sold to the government, but usually a good first step for any sales process is go find users that are most passionate about you and just tell them the situation you're in, right? Say like, hey, we're turning this into a company. We honestly don't know what we're doing. Can you help us walk through the process? 
And because those first users were so passionate and so excited about this, they really taught us like the, the basics of, you know, how do you get into a government? Uh, how much should you charge for it? What is the actual value you're providing? A lot of that our, our users taught us. Not, you know, that, that's how we actually ended up learning. Now, how many of these first, you know, very passionate users did you work with to define all that? All, like how, how did you decide, you know, pricing and what was that kind of, how many of those conversations did you have before you felt comfortable with you know, selling to a wider, a broader audience. It was about like a dozen. I think we okay. had like, you know, maybe like fifty excited customers from the very beginning, and then we worked with a dozen of them to start start refining our process. Once we got through about a dozen, we had enough comfort that we really wanted to expand, and that's sort of when things started to take off. Was there a point when you absolutely knew it was working? Like your team just came together and was like, "Yes." <laughs> well, it's very stressful because you know there's the sales cycle for us. It's like ninety days, and at the beginning, if you've never done sales. Before, before. You don't really have a good sense of where in that sales process you are. And it's not going to just suddenly close. You have to wait for that process to sort of go through its, its full cycle. Uh, so for a lot of the duration of YC, we're like, oh my God, I don't know if this is going to be a company. I don't know if there's like business viability. Um, but as we started approaching, you know, that 60, 70, 80 days, the, the contract started signing and one came in and then two came in and then like six came in. And I think it's that point that we're like, oh my God, this thing has legs. We can actually keep going. <laughs> were you just reaching out to an like a, a, a huge number of cities or, or were you focused on a few targets? Well, at the very beginning and throughout most of the first year, it was people who came to us. Mm -hmm. um, so we had a few press hits, we had like a few retweets, but mostly just word of mouth of like the you know transit planners who were most excited about better planning. They would just tell their friends like, "Have you seen this cool thing?" Uh, and so they would reach out to us, and it really was this wide range of cities from like you know Oakland, San Antonio. It's kind of spread all over the U.S. What are some of the interesting things you learned about those first cities that started using you? Did they use you in a way that surprised you at all? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think most of the product learning happens when you see people using it. Um, one of the things we realized very quickly is that now that things are digital, there's all these things you can layer on top that just would not be possible on sort of that piece of paper. And just to give you an example of this, we have this feature called Jane, where you sketch out your transit map, and then you drag Jane there. And then it shows you how far she can go in 15 uh, 30, 45, 60 minutes, so how far she can actually travel. And that's like a really deep analysis that we run automatically for you. It's just something like totally not possible on a sheet of paper. But once you have it, it starts becoming a core part of your planning process. You sketch out an option. You don't really care about the lines, right? The lines are just this, this beginning step. You care about the freedom that's provided to the people who actually ride the transit system. So you can drag her on and start thinking at this higher level that would not have been possible before. So did that, um, did building that feature did that idea come from watching your users or was that something that you thought you know, you kind of came up with having a bird's eye view of the whole process. It was absolutely for my users. So this is I had like something that have kind of been known in academia. This is like a way of looking at it. Mm -hmm. And people had created these esoteric tools to do it in these like, you know, very unique circumstances. Um, but we heard about it from so many people like, hey, I wish I could do thing X. And we said, OK, well, we can make it really easy for you to do thing X and just put it out there. So what do you how do you go about watching your users? Did you literally like physically sit down with them or did you sh screen share? Like, no, what, yeah, what did we, that look yeah, like? Yeah, we absolutely <laughs> just went and physically visited them. And the interesting thing about transit is that, uh, you know, cities are geographically distributed by nature. Mm -hmm. So there's no, like, section of customers in one city. You have to go to a bunch of different cities. Um, so, yeah, we actually traveled, went to a lot of the California agencies and sat down next to them and said, hey, can you just walk me through your process? And then when do you go to each city that you're selling to and, and really 
literally ride the transit systems <laughs> and get, get a better sense for how everything works. Well, I think at the beginning, visiting was very important, but uh, you can't really scale out to sell yeah, into right. a ton of cities. Um, so these days, most of our sales happen uh, over the phone. So we talk to them over the phone. We get a pretty strong sense of what their transit system's like and do screen sharing as necessary. Uh, and then if they're like, you know, Melbourne, if they're a very large city, we'll go physically out there and make sure that it's working well. So you have four founders um, do, working yeah. on Remix. And so what is the decision-making process look like? It's a good question. I think this was something we were worried a lot about at the beginning because I think all the uh, traditional advice had been like, have two to three founders, four people is just going to be so hard. You're going to get these roadblocks where two people want to do one thing and two people want to do another thing. Um, have you seen that be a case at all? So that's the thing. We haven't really. And I guess the way we generally learn is just try things and see what happens. And so we said, hey, four co-founders, uh, you know, obviously two to three is the YC official recommendation. Why don't we just try four and see what happens? Right. And it turned out it worked great, right? We knew each other really well from beforehand. We know how each other, how each of us thinks. And I feel like we understand the perspective that each of us brings. So usually uh, we don't get stuck, right? We talk through it. We figure out what is the two or three experiments we have to run uh, or who has the most expertise where we'll just default to them and start evaluating. So for us, it's actually been fantastically successful. So what does your kind of testing process look like? You said that you like to kind of you know, kind yeah. of work quickly, test things out, experiment and see if they work. Sure. What's an example of that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's lots of examples. So one is, you know, what what is the value prop of your company? Like, what is the thing that you say on the phone to the other person that, you know, succinctly explains what your company does? And it's like a really, it's a thing that you could argue about for like hours or weeks, you know, because it's so vague. It's like, what is the sentence that describes what your company is? Instead of doing that, you can come up with a list of five and get on the phone with users and say five and see which one actually resonates with them, right? Almost always the users will be like, oh, obviously you're doing thing X, right? And they will help you make a decision in a way that you yourself could not. So that, that's an example, just choosing like how we describe ourselves. We, uh, before were... I don't even know how we were describing ourselves, but but now one of the things that we say all the time is like, this is a what if tool. Like, what if you did this? What would the implications on your city be? And that came entirely from just like talking to our users to see what, what they thought. So if you're just joining us, I'm Kat Yalik, and you're listening to Startup School Radio. I'm speaking with Sam Hashemi, the co-founder and CEO of Remix. We're talking a little bit about how decision-making happens in a company with four founders. Um, so now I'd like to kind of talk about uh, you're selling to, you know, governments, you know, transit agencies worldwide. Um, have you found uh, any interesting challenges in, you know, selling to international agencies versus U.S.? Like what what have you kind of seen? What are the differences there? Do you have to totally change your pitch? So we're in six countries now. And I think the answer is no. Um, the problems that you encounter in the world of planning a large scale transit system are the same worldwide. Mm -hmm. It's mostly controlled by geometry than it is, you know, anything else? Like, can you physically move around people around the city? And that same physical problem applies no matter what city you're in. Um, so the main difference we found is the purchasing process is, mm -hmm. is fairly different depending on the country. Uh, government usually has like a set of regulations that they'll go through before they can actually sign a contract. And depending on the country, it could be something very quick. It could be something very long. So one of the surprising things we found is Australia is very quick in signing contracts. They can move much faster than other countries we've encountered. Uh, U.S. is somewhere in the middle. Europe gets a little bit complicated. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's just different purchasing processes that you have to learn as you dive into each of these countries. So what, um, how do you decide which market 
markets or which cities to focus on? So again, for for us, it's mostly been inbound. So mm-hmm. people just come to us, and that's that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> it does simplify the process a lot when customers come to you, um, and we're mostly swamped with dealing with those folks. So if people come to us and they say this is a good problem, those are the people we focus on. So you haven't yet had to do any much outbound. We're just experimenting that with the first time this week. We're just you know we want to kind of scale up for the second year, so we're experimenting with how outbound would work. Uh, but up until now, inbound has been the way we've been doing stuff. Is there a city size that particularly works well with Remix, or is it just pretty much any city with a transportation system? Yeah, it's a good question. So we do have a huge range. Our smallest, I think, is Sandusky, Ohio. <laughs> They've got like three buses and one guy, Marvin, who like part-time <laughs> plans out where those buses go. Um, and he's actually gotten a ton of use out of it. He's one of our like best customers. He comes to us regularly and like, I just did this in Sandusky, Ohio, and we get super excited. Um, but our largest customer is, I think, Melbourne, Australia, and they've got like 1,500 buses out there actually planning for the entire state of Victoria. Uh, so it's this really wide range. I'd say the, the sweet spot often starts to be these middle-sized cities mm-hmm. where they have so much to plan, but often not enough staff. So you have one or two folks trying to plan out a giant region, and you are swamped. <laughs> and you wish you could be as as on point as you need to be for planning a city like that. Um, so, you know, I think Oakland really hits that sweet spot where they plan the entire um, entire East Bay here in the San Francisco area and they have three planners. <laughs> and it is super hectic and it is very difficult unless you have technology to support you to, to be effective. So for people who are just going to start yeah. embarking on the process of you know, selling to large government organizations. Do you have any tips for them or any any things to think through? I think the first thing is just build a great product. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, if you just put a chart of government on the board and then threw a dart at it, you'd probably pick a section of government that has opportunity for technology to make it much, much better. And the first thing I do before any sales process is just make sure the, the thing you're building really resonates with those users. And once that's in place, I feel like it will solve all your other problems. Um, The way we sort of went through this process was really starting that side project and getting these users super passionate. And then they taught us everything we needed to know to figure out sales, to figure out marketing, to figure out how to expand that pool. Um, So at least in our experience, we tried to make sure the product solves a problem and the rest comes comes naturally. So a lot of times we see some of the best uh, founders kind of building product that solves a problem they experience themselves. Was that one of was that the case for you? Did did you ride a lot of public transportation? Did you feel that pain point personally? Uh, so, well, absolutely, I was riding public transit and, and feeling that problem. I think the problem I didn't feel was the planning piece of it. Like, mm-hmm. how do you, you know, I experienced the rider thing. Like, I'm on there. Why isn't this bus going where I want it to go or fast enough or whatever it is? Um, but the actual problem is fundamentally different. It's you have to plan a large scale system that's reliable, that gets everyone to everywhere they want to go. <laughs> and how do you do that? And I had no personal experience doing that before this. And I think most of uh, the problems of government are fairly specific. There are things that you yourself just won't know unless you've been in that job. Um, And so we came at it more from a user research and design perspective Mm -hmm. of we don't necessarily know what's best. Let's just sit down with these people, like physically sit down with them, watch them do their job, see if this is working, if not iterate on it, and just learn from them instead of making too many assumptions. Right. So as you've grown, you know, you were in YC, what, a year ago? A year ago, yeah. So as you've grown, what do you have 
what are the biggest challenges that you're facing now versus, you know, year ago, year ago it was it was trying to figure out whether you had an actual product, whether you could make any sales. And and now I'm sure it's quite different now that you're in, a, in 100 cities. Uh, yeah, I think 75 cities, 100 soon, hopefully. Um, yeah, the challenges have changed pretty fundamentally. So it's uh, I think at the beginning was like, do people want this product and how do we get into their hands? We had to like answer those two sort of key questions. And now the problem is a lot of cities want it and we need to get into all of their hands. Right. <laughs> how do you get from like, okay, we kind of have it working to doing it at a larger scale. And for me, the biggest change has been spending a lot more time on recruiting. Um, I, I, you know, last week, I think I had something like 14, 15 coffee meetings, just going like back and forth and meeting folks. And so actually... what are you recruiting? What positions do you recruit for to help you scale this? Absolutely everything. I think <laughs> that's the tricky part about being like a SaaS business. You do need to execute on all fronts. You need engineering, design, marketing, sales. You have to do all of them. Otherwise, your company is not going to do well. And so we literally are hiring on all those fronts. And, and does it fall to you as CEO to, to kind of initiate all those conversations? How much involvement do your co-founders have there as well? I think recruiting is a whole company activity. Like everyone's deeply involved in like pulling people into the process. Um, I think naturally I am doing a little bit more of it just because I, you know, I'm trying to shape very specifically the type of people we bring in. Um, but yeah, recruiting ends up being a large burden for the whole company. And so thinking about that sort of upfront, uh, I think it's like an important realization that there's this shift between building a product to building a company and realizing that you're going to make that shift in the both the people and processes you have to put in place. In the Bay Area right now, it's it's a really you know uh, competitive environment to hire anyone. Um, so how do you get people excited about? You guys have a pretty yeah. awesome mission, but but what are you know how do you go about kind of inspiring people to both apply and then join your team? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I've kind of been surprised because I think we have two advantages that apparently are not as prevalent as the, on the market as I'd hope. Uh, the first is I think we're doing this really deep like social good thing. We're like actually changing the world in a specific way we want it seen, uh, a specific way we want it changed. So enabling folks to get anywhere in their city using public transit, right? It's, it's a, I think a thing that most people can agree with. Um, and the second is uh, we have a real business, right? We sell to cities, they pay us money, we're cash flow positive. Uh, it's this unique combination of like doing a fantastic thing for a world, but doing it as a business. And that lets you both grow fairly fantastically, so mm -hmm. you can grow an actual business. And as that business grows, it feeds back into making the world better and it feeds back into growing the business. So I think we've done a really good job of aligning what we want to see happen with where our money comes from. And as a result, that that pitch tends to be quite successful to the folks we talk to. How big is your team now? We are 11 people. Oh, 11 people. That's great. And so are you are you planning to stay kind of Cal, like San Francisco, California based or or is this, you know, is it a team you see kind of being an international? The company itself? Mm -hmm. I think we want to be local for the moment. Um, I'm a big fan of just sitting physically next to the person you're working with and like having both the, the conversation, but also the like subtle non-conversation that ends up making some of the decisions. Um, so we'll be growing here for the moment. So, um, you know, I also wanted to ask, so yeah. if you, you went to CMU. I did. And um, if so, if you were talking to a CMU student today and they wanted to kind of, they were passionate about startups or passionate about technology or government or, or whatever, what advice would you give them? Ooh, this is, I got to give advice to all CMU grads. All right. <laughs> Don't don't listen to me, kids. That's the first advice I'd say. The second <laughs> second thing is, I, I think the thing I read this really good book recently called "Doing Good Better," uh, and I think it summarizes this idea better than I will now. So just go find that book and read it. But the the thing you want to do is find a place where 
A, you feel like it's going to have a big impact on the world, and B, no one else is doing it. Because if a bunch of people are doing it and uh, you know it will have impact on the world, it's likely that if you didn't do that, someone else would, and that impact would happen anyway. But if it's going to have a big impact and very few other people are doing it, you are in the unique position of accomplishing something that perhaps no one else could. And so if you can identify areas that fit both those categories, that's where I'd spend your time. How do you find those things? That like people aren't not many people are doing. <laughs> well, I think uh, you know. I, I, I say this because I talk to a lot of college students who are always yeah. trying to solve their own problem, and it's like how to find parties on a Friday night. And so, how, <laughs> how how do you go about finding those like important problems? I think there's a lot of ways. I mean, there's the throw a dart at the government chart. I think you'd <laughs> yeah. probably find a problem that fits that category. Um, but I think you can also just start ta- you know networking to folks who understand areas that you may not. So just deep diving into like a vertical that you've never, you know, go go talk to someone who's a healthcare expert and understand what's going on in the healthcare world, right? There are people you can easily talk to that know, you know, a lot about a domain that you may not. And if you just have enough of those conversations, you'll start to feel out which of those areas exist. Awesome. I've been speaking with Sam Hashemi, the co-founder and CEO of Remix. Sam, thank you so much for joining me today. Absolutely. Appreciate it. To find out more about Remix, you can find them online at getremix.com. You should definitely do that because it is a beautifully designed product. Um, or you can follow them at uh, on Twitter at Remix Cities. And you can follow Sam on Twitter at OKSamuel. Coming up, Brett Northart and Rakesh Tondon will be, ta- will be joining me to talk about their on-demand fashion startup called La Tote, which is known as the Netflix of fashion. I'm Kat Mignolik, and you're listening to Startup School Radio on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. You're listening to Startup School Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Aaron Harris. <laughs> Welcome back to Startup School Radio on business radio powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM Channel 111. I'm your host, Kat Mignolik, a partner at Y Combinator. I'm happy to welcome to the show my next guests, Brett Northart and Rakesh Tondon, the co-founders of Latote. Latote is a fashion rental service that gives women access to an infinite closet of garments and accessories for a fixed price each month. The company was part of the YC batch in summer 2013 and has raised 30 million from notable investors and a number of notable angels. Brett, Rakesh, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having us. Great to be here. So I have to say, first of all, that I'm a user of Latote <laughs> and a huge fan. That, that makes us very happy. <laughs> And, and so I, I, just to kind of give people a sense of what Latote is, do you want to describe it in your own words? Sure. So a lot of people have described this as the Netflix of women's clothes. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's been done pretty well. So the way the service works is you fill out a style profile. We send you a box of three garments and two accessories that you keep and wear as long as you want. The idea is to give you the variety for everyday wear that you crave Uh, for a fraction of the cost of owning these pieces. So you can wear these things once, twice, as many times as you want. Then you send it all back to us, and we'll send you another box of three garments and two accessories. So you can essentially do unlimited boxes each month. Yeah. Sorry, go go for it. And I think what's not directly apparent is that, you know, underlying the experience to provide the box every month, we're collecting a ton of data and feedback from our customers. And so we're able to give them a really personalized experience in every box. And everything coming to you is unique. It's things that we think will fit you well and relevant 
recommendations that we're making for you in every box. Yeah, yeah, personally, as a user, I will like hold on to a box for three weeks to a month. And then I have, you know, a cousin who uses it who cycles through a box every week. Um, and it's, it's a really fun experience that you get a surprise in the mail, you know, as often as you want it. Um, so so I love the experience that you're, you've built. And I think over the past, you know, I've been a subscriber for the past year or so, and, and the clothes have actually been getting like, better suited to me, I suppose. Like They're a better fit. So that's, I guess, based on the data that you're collecting. Yeah, so the idea is to build a Pandora-esque experience for fashion, where as you use the service longer, we get to know you better, both from a fit and a style perspective. And we've also found that things change over time. So as people go through life events, like a pregnancy or getting married, um, you know, the style might change. Or maybe you move cities and, you know, coming from... New York to San Francisco, style is dramatically different. different. And so if people are adapting, if they're asking for different types of items, we'll adapt over time to that as well. So really quick, how much does it cost a month? So it's $59 a month. Mm -hmm. And uh, you have the ability to purchase insurance on top of that, that insures you against any minor next damages cuts that you might have on the clothes. And the $59 gets you unlimited boxes. So you can, like your cousin, I think you said, you can get three, four boxes a month. You can get one box a month. It's completely up to you on the cadence. And we'll take care of shipping and cleaning both ways. So really, you're just using the stuff, um, sending it back and getting more great stuff in the mail. And then the added bonus on top of it is you have the ability to purchase anything that you Mm -hmm. absolutely love as well. And you get a slight discount to retail pricing. So go ahead, let's go back to the beginning. And you started out as investment bankers. So what you know inspired you to start your own companies and, and specifically what inspired this idea? So yeah. on the personal side, um, you know, my girlfriend at the time was in a more formalized swap group where they would get together, drink wine, swap clothing, and they would track who had what on a spreadsheet. And it was a great excuse to get together socially and they would share clothes and they were doing this to get access to variety. It was, it was a bunch of single women in their twenties. Um, and at the same time, Rakesh's wife was going through a second pregnancy. And so very different stage in her life, but still sharing with a few close friends to get access to that variety because she knew she was never going to hang on to those clothes forever. You know, we always say no one, no one that has ever said, I love these maternity clothes. I want to own them forever. (laughs) Right. Um, so there's, there's no reason to really go out and buy a bunch of that stuff. And so we found it really interesting that women at very different places in their life we're doing the exact same thing to get access to that everyday variety. And on top of that, it's something that women grew up doing with their sisters, their cousins, their roommates in college, their roommates in San Francisco. Um, you know, the more women that we talked to, the more we realized how commonplace this actually was. And this is a very hyper-local experience, you know. So mm-hmm. you have to meet people that are your size, your style, people that you trust, and people that have something to swap with you. And then you have to find a place to meet these people. So it's it's logistically much tougher than one thinks, right? If you're trying to do a more more formal swap group to get that variety. So we said, why not take the friction away and make this an online digital experience and open it up as a closet for everyone globally to share. So it's sort of a national shared closet. Now, none of the limitations that you had to deal with, you don't have to meet people, you don't have to, uh, unless you want to, (laughs) (laughs) you don't, uh, you know, and we're essentially the trust layer. So we try to make sure what we send you looks good, looks pretty close to new, and that it uh, gives you that variety. Uh, and then a much larger closet of uh, clothes and accessories to choose from. So, you know, essentially taking that offline experience and bringing it online 
to uh, to make it be more accessible to women everywhere. And then you mentioned that we were in the in the banking world. So from a professional standpoint, Rakesh and I worked with a number of e-commerce businesses, early growth stage tech companies. And the, the great thing about doing that job is you get to see a lot of things that are driving the industry and think a lot about kind of the macro trends that are taking place. And having worked with a number of commerce companies, everyone from Amazon down to a Series A funded business, um, you know, looking to grow their retail operations or e-commerce ops, you get a good sense of what's driving growth in the industry, what changes are taking place. And after the recession, we just found a fundamental shift in the way that people are accessing things. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you see this in transportation with Uber and Lyft, um, in the home space, you know, HomeAway, Airbnb. VRBO. I mean, there's so many. And, and retail or fashion is the next biggest spend category. And we found it fascinating that this is actually something that people grow up doing and no one's really cracked the nut on how to do this at a large scale. I remember after the downturn, there were a lot of uh, articles written about how, you know, millennials essentially didn't want to own anything anymore. It, it was just a, you know, rental economy. And and I remember, you know, I'm, I fit squarely in that demographic. And I was like, yes, I don't want to own anything <laughs> ever. And th so, uh, you know, when I think the biggest, you know, pushback I get when I tell friends about the toad is they're like, oh, you're you're wearing like clothes that have been worn before by other people. But um, I but it's when I tell older people, you know, I have to kind of convince them that it's not icky, whereas like I feel like I talk yeah, to a lot of people that. in my demographic and they're like, oh, that's awesome. Sure. Sign me up. Yeah. And the great thing is this isn't a fad that's just going away. You know, it didn't last 2009, 2010 and it's going away. I think people are moving more in this direction. And we actually just launched maternity back in October. And this was really, it, it was the impetus for starting the business. We got the idea from Rakesh's wife. And I think for a lot of people that were skeptical about the concept for themselves, I think once they're pregnant, you're like, okay, look, I don't want to own this stuff. Let's try it. So it's a great gateway for us to get some of those skeptical folks yeah, that, that were, sense. that we're unsure about it and like, let me try it for maternity. And as we get to understand their sizing and their style preferences, you know, after they have the baby, a lot of women have said, this is great because you can, I don't want to go out and buy a bunch of things in a size that I know I'm going to change in the next few months. Yeah. So we often see startup founders building products that sort of solve their own problems. And so as, as two male founders building a platform for women, um, how, what did you do early on to get to know your users intimately and to understand what the needs were? I mean, I think, I think we didn't start out saying we wanted to start a company. We said we wanted to solve the problem in our wife's life or in my wife's life and in his girlfriend's life to get them the variety. So we said, you know, maybe we, we do something um, to help them get that variety. Um, and that's really where we started talking to more and more people and realized that this could be a much bigger opportunity than just simply solving the uh, problem in my, in, a, in my wife's life or his girlfriend's life. Um, so we talked to a ton of you, uh, people that could potentially be our uh, target demo. And, you know, every time we came up with this idea of a, an online shared closet, people thought it was genius. So, you know, it was really trying to narrow down the problem and then talking to as many people and being open minded to what they had to say um, to really get to understand the user and the user behavior that would help us attract customers that, you know, I would say was the initial impetus behind uh, starting this company. Yeah, we talked to 
a lot of folks in the target demographic and we we didn't dwell on the concept for too long we just started buying clothes and sending them out to friends relatives really anyone that would take a box from us mm -hmm. um Rakesh and I did a number of trips to LA <laughs> to the LA Mart um it's this massive wholesale shopping area in downtown LA so we did a number of trips where we were like oh shit we ran out of clothes and it, we need to go get some more stuff um so we drove down to LA we picked it up um, came back and we started sending out more things. So we did a lot. Did you have anyone helping? Where it was just you two so picking all the So initially it was just the two of us and then we brought in a couple of our other friends mm -hmm. to to help us. So one of one of our early um, uh, employees who is one of our uh, co-founders was Hina. She, she was a buyer for Macy's and Lord & Taylor for about 12 or 13 years. So she knew a little more about fashion than we did. Um, but it, I would say in the first month or first couple of months, it was just Brett and I doing pretty much everything. So once we got the business going, that's when we brought Hina on board to help us make a, a make buying decisions. So was there a moment when you knew Latote was going to work? Was there a, like, was it like an or someone that you didn't know signed up? We're or? still we're still waiting for that. <laughs> I I would say you know it was it was faith in our ability to respond to the customer quickly and to adapt the business to the customer. So I would say the first year was, was an experimental year. So it was no expectations. We didn't raise money from outside uh, investors. It was just our money and our credit cards. So we went out, bought a bunch of clothes, ran the business to really understand how this customer would interact and who this customer was. So, you know, our hypothesis was more or less correct in the configuration of the box and what she would uh, potentially use this clothing for, but our customer age was 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 different from what we had expected. We had expected the 18 to 24 year old customer to really uh, be our core customer. Ended up our customers a little bit older, our customers 28 to, uh, or 25 to 40 year old urban professional female looking for variety for work. And to, to Rakesh's point, I think the flip side of it's really difficult to build a business if you are not the core customer. Mm -hmm. The benefit is that you have a healthy detachment from specifics of the business. And so we were able to look at that and say, okay, if it's not for the 18 to 24 year old, let's rethink our merchandising strategy and go out and attract that you know, different customer. And I think we've been able to do that with a lot of things for the business. And what we found is a lot of founders who are solving their own problem often only act on intuition and gut. And they say like, I know this is how we're gonna solve this problem because this is how I want it to be solved. And while I think that's beneficial for a lot of people, um, I think for this business it's really helped us adapt to the changing needs of the customer. So, you know, our demographics change. To your point about the clothing, it's changed a lot over the last year. We've tried to make it better. We've changed the styles, the brand portfolio. And so a lot of these things we were able to do because we listened to the customer. We weren't just saying, this is what I want, so let's just build what I want. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it was it was literally looking at a lot more data points than simply relying on our gut or our intuition, and then um, adapting our decisions because because of those data points that we were collecting, and that really helped us become more objective and helped sort of set the cult company culture around data and being very data driven rather than trusting our gut. So from a consumer perspective, like Latote is awesome, but as a company, it sounds like there are a lot of logistics at play. What are, you know, how do you tackle that or what are some of the hardest bits of it? This has evolved over time. So when we started, a lot of the advice that we got and as a founder, you'll get 
gobs of advice and most of it is terrible or irrelevant. I think it's probably good advice for certain businesses at certain points in time, but I think a lot of it is irrelevant for your business at whatever point in time or you know phase of the company you're at. So most people told us just get this to a third party logistics company as quickly as possible, offload the operations because you don't want to have to deal with that. But I think for our business, it helps us build a really healthy moat around it. If we can figure out how to turn things quicker, make them smell good, look good, you know, feel fresh and new, um, fit you really well, it helps us build this competitive advantage relative to other people that might think about coming into the space. And so we've spent a lot of time and effort upfront building out the infrastructure to do this. And that's everything from developing all the warehouse management software ourselves, um, massive undertaking, but a lot of the systems out there were these really clunky, old school on-premise solutions that weren't flexible. And honestly, most warehouses still see returns as an edge case. And the irony of that is now, particularly with women's fashion, returns account for about 50% of the sales. So it's a massive number now, mm -hmm. and everyone still views it as this uh, you know, corner case. So having built that, it gives us a great leg up as we build for the future. Um, and then on the upside, actually building out facilities that make sense for this type of business. So it's a big undertaking and there's a physical element. I think a lot of the companies that go through IC um, don't have to deal with physical goods, and particularly <laughs> yeah. physical infrastructure around those goods. Um, so we've got an interesting challenge in that we're building software um, to recommend great items. We're building our own fit algorithms. We're building warehouse management software to move atoms, you know? So right. there's, there's all this stuff that we're trying to manage and it's definitely complex, but I think longer term, it really helps us have that advantage. If you're just joining us, I'm Kat Mignolik, and you're listening to Startup School Radio. I'm speaking with the co-founders of Latote, Brett Northart and Rakesh Tandon, about building the Netflix of fashion. So um, one thing, one question I had is, uh, many investors, you've raised uh, around at this point, or? 30, yes. And uh, most investors are men. Do you have, <laughs> did you have a hard time explaining to them, you know, how big this opportunity was? Oh yes, let's not even get started with that. Um, we had we had a, we had the reverse sexism. You know, most <laughs> women founders go out and raise money, and they feel like, and they definitely do have an uphill battle. And we've seen this with a lot of our female founder friends. We had the reversal of that, which is two guys starting a women's fashion company. You know, a lot of people were extremely skeptical, and quite frankly, I would have two, been too. Two guys who didn't come from fashion, didn't come from e-commerce, investment bankers turned entrepreneurs, trying to tackle a big problem, a really complex business. So, so we had a lot of that. In the beginning, I think where investors got comfortable was, you know, right around the time where we uh, had a lot of data points when we got into YC, um, and then graduating from the program. Added How long had you been working on Latope before? So we'd been working for about nine months, okay. ten months. It's been a year, I think. Yeah, yeah. So, so we'd been working for a for a while. Uh, we collected enough data points. We knew what we were talking about, and I think that's where. You know, investors got comfortable with the fact that the business actually had legs. We were, we were not just two chumps trying to, <laughs> you know, trying to do something that was a pie in the sky sort of an idea. On, on, the, was, on the good advice side, I, the best advice I ever heard about fundraising is traction is the greatest theater. Right. right. Um, and so for us, it was like we built for a year. We developed more than just the concept. We had a bunch of paying customers. We had you know, a decent amount of revenue for a bootstrapped company at that stage. And we felt like we were at a good place to go raise, but it was definitely something where we couldn't just go out with a deck and an idea and raise money. Sure. We had to show a lot more 
traction at that point. Yeah. So after YC, you raised around, and then uh, you mentioned that your investors were saying, you know, you should outsource logistics. How did you go about pushing back on them and convincing them that you had to build the full operation yourselves? I mean, I think it was it was us, our our gut knowing that that was likely not the best uh, solution for us. So it was putting forward that case and then backing that up by data, showing how well we could do it, how quickly we could turn our inventory around, how efficiently we could do it uh, in terms of costs. And then ultimately, you know, boil down to the economics of the business and saying economically, we still can't believe we do it that much faster, that that much more efficiently in terms of cost than a third-party logistics company. So it does make sense for us to invest in that area. So today we do it at at least half the cost of a third-party logistics company, turning products around way faster than you know some of those guys. And so you know it was it was our gut and then data uh, and that was backed by data that we then uh, put forward as a case to our investors and to you know people that were providing us with advice. And, and for us, the customer experience is just so important. And so offloading a core piece of the customer experience was just very difficult to swallow. And so we thought about it and you know we didn't have to deliberate for too long before we figured out we don't want to compromise the most important piece of the journey, which is getting the great items to you, making sure they look good, feel good, and so, you know, in thinking about the customer, it was kind of a no-brainer. How did you bring on your first customers? <laughs> so, um, outside, outside of our friends, that were sending boxes. Your friends. So here's kind of what we did. We um, we we tried everything in the book. Uh, we spammed all our friends on Facebook and said, "Hey, this is a company we're starting. You should tell everyone you know." Um, we took all the email addresses of everyone that we had relevant or not men or, or women. It didn't matter. We added them to, to our list and we started sending them emails. And then we, you know, one thing smart, uh, that we did early on was building that, um, referral structure into our product, which was really important. So the way we grew our list was really offering people the ability to refer people and making those rewards really rich for them. So we created sort of a gated experience for people and you could only get in if you referred X number of people. So there were different levels. And, you know, if you referred two people, we sent you a tote bag. If you referred more, we gave you more, we give you a purchase credit and whatnot. And then if you referred, I think six people or eight people, we allowed you to uh, join the service. So it was, it was something that people had to sort of earn that allowed us to collect a bunch of email addresses. Which I think was more of a novel concept when yeah. we started. Now this seems right. like yeah. a no-brainer. But uh, I don't, how long did you keep that going? So we actually kept it a gated experience, we'll call it a private beta, for over a year. So we ended up building up a wait list of something like 25,000 emails um, in a very short time frame. So we were able to work off that wait list for over a year. And really, you know, our business, we have to have capacity in the warehouse and people to send stuff out. We've got to have enough clothing. Um, and then we've got to be able to find the customers. So at that point we had the customers, but we didn't really have capacity since it was Rakesh <laughs> and I washing clothes and um, packing boxes and sending stuff out. We're not that great at uh, the operations side of the business. <laughs> so I think that was our big constraint. And so we worked off that for a while and we talked to a lot of customers, made sure we were sending out the right product and it was on the right cadence. It's three garments and two accessories, the right configuration. So we thought a lot about the core experience as we were sending it out and trying to get that feedback. Do you have warehouses around the country? 
So currently we have one warehouse and we're moving into another 150,000 square foot facility. So we'll still have one, but it'll be consolidated with our cleaning uh, unit as well as our uh, picking, packing and shipping unit. Is this something you see going beyond the U.S.? We, we think that the world is our marketplace and, you know, or the world is our playground. And I think there's applications of this business in, in markets internationally. We get uh, approached by investors and our partners internationally as well that want to do a flavor of Latote in their uh, countries. And, you know, right now we're focusing on the U.S. We said, you know, we want to be that 800 pound gorilla in this market and then start to focus on international markets. So how do you prioritize what features or, you know, what you'll introduce next. So uh, since I started subscribing, you launched, you know, you introduced your mobile app, you do maternity clothes now, you let people choose what's coming in their box. So how do you kind of decide what, you know, to launch? So I think for, for any business, it's really tough figuring out what you should prioritize and focus on, because I think you look at a business in the early stages and there's just so much you could do. And so we fell into the trap early on, probably for the first year of trying to do way too much. Mm-hmm. And so the tote swap feature, which you mentioned, which is just letting people select exactly what comes in their box. So we'll recommend items and then the customer gets the final say of what comes. That was something that over a year and a half, we gave people increasingly more control over the experience. So at first it was a mystery box entirely. There wasn't really much of a website. You couldn't see any of the clothing. And then we started letting people add adding, add things to their closet, which was like their wish list or their queue. And once they did that, people were like, hey, I'd like to get this item at this time. And where we realized we were missing the mark is we could get very good at recommending things that were in your closet or related to that, but we didn't have any context on your life. So let's say you are going to Cabo next week and you want three maxi dresses. Well, it's winter in San Francisco, so we would not be sending you anything close to a maxi dress, let alone three of them. So by giving people that last mile control really changed the game for us. And we found that after hearing it enough from customers, it was just something we had to do. And if we really wanted to be a a long-term part of someone's life, we had to give them more control over the experience. So I think a lot of these things bubble up from repeated interactions with customers, the same pay point that comes up over and over for a variety of different customers. It's not necessarily a vocal minority. Um, It's it's kind of a large cross-section of people all looking for similar things. How did you decide to launch Maternity? So maternity, I mean, that was the initial inspiration behind Mm -hmm. the business. You know, our customer is the 25 to 40 year old urban professional female. A lot of them who are mothers are expecting uh, 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 women. So, you know, we saw a lot of our customers put their accounts on hold or cancel because they were going through this life changing experience where they didn't really have the need for work related clothes or, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, things that they would wear out. They just wanted things that were more functional that we weren't able to offer them in the, in the sizes and at that, uh, at that point in their lives. So for us, it was a way to give them something that we would still be a part of their lives and a real experience where, you know, the need for something like this exists. So, you know, as Brett was saying earlier, you know, no, no woman that has gone through pregnancy has said, I want to keep these maternity clothes and I'm going to wear them again. No one ever said that. And so we said, we want to respond to that customer. We want to continue to have a long-term relationship with her. And so maternity is a great way to do that. So very large number of our customers continue to, uh, you know, uh, use maternity as a, as an option to, 
So how has um, the Latote concept been received by, you know, members of the establishment of the fashion industry? So that's an interesting question. I think particularly given what's happening in retail right now, um, there's just a dramatic shift in the way that people are shopping and how they're accessing their clothes, period. And, you know, mall traffic is down 50 or 60 percent since 2009. So there's a huge shift in how much is getting sold through traditional channels. And so all of the individual brands are really looking for new or emerging channels to offload their clothing. Um, and I, I don't mean to offload in a bad way. I mean, just like great channels sell through. And so um, they're using online. You know, they're going to folks like Shopbop and Zappos and looking for interesting new places to sell. And I think our concept is a great way for them to get access to a new customer base, to have people try things before they commit to the brand. And so a lot of people who never would have tried French Connection get to use it, see if it fits their body, see if they like the style or the quality, and then they'll go out and actually make a purchase. So we have just under a minute left. So I wanted to ask you, you know, now that you've been at this for a few years now, what would uh, what advice would you give your past selves when you were just starting out? <laughs> we only have a minute. <laughs> no, <laughs> I would say, uh, you know, some of the things we did really well was was listening to the customer, being really patient. What we would have done sooner, uh, or you know, if we were to go back in time, I would say, you know, try and look for more relevant people that w you would want to bring on early early on so we made some hiring decisions we made some bad hiring decisions early on and it's you know easy to look back in the mirror and say i shouldn't have done that but you know relying on your gut to make those decisions and 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 moving fast uh when you realize things aren't working out so cut those relationships if they're not working out faster would be something that i would recommend everyone do and i would say just try to do fewer things better um, and also don't listen to anyone's advice. <laughs> <laughs> Brett, Rakesh, thank you so much for joining me today. Great. Thanks so much. Thanks a lot. You can check out Latote online at www.latote.com and follow them on Twitter at Latote. If you have a question about something you heard on today's show, you can email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com and follow me on Twitter at Kat Mignolik. Thanks for joining us today and a special thank you to producer Dana Cash and associate producer and engineer Dion Simpkins. Be sure to tune in for another edition of our show next Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific. I'm Kat Mignolik and you've been listening to Startup School Radio on Business Radio powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. Thank you.